flip over to the Old Testament. We're looking at 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13, again in your pew Bibles, that's on page 405. 405 of your pew Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 13. Our text this morning is going to focus upon verses 14 through 25, the death of Elisha. But for the sake of context, we're going to read verses 10 through 25. But before we do, we need to understand that we've come to the end of our journey through the life of Elijah and Elisha. We've been traveling through these great prophets and their ministries for about a half a year now. And multiple times throughout this journey, we've talked about how Elijah and Elisha are what we would call types of Christ. Types as in they foreshadow the great work and the great person that Jesus Christ would do and Jesus Christ would be. In fact, many commentators have rightly drawn the parallel from Elijah and Elisha to John the baptizer and Jesus. They have said Elijah is like John the baptizer, preparing the way for the Lord. It's Elijah who then prepares the way for Elisha. And Elisha has a ministry that has received a double portion of God's spirit, of God's blessing. And of course, John the baptizer would prepare the ministry, prepare the way in the ministry for Jesus Christ himself, the very God-made man. And so as we look at the last scenes of Elisha's life, they are very outrightly pointing us to Jesus And I want you to see, even before we read, three ways in which this text, the ending of Elisha's life, is going to point us to Jesus. We'll hear about uh, the great prophet Elisha facing death. We'll have this deathbed experience. And even in that deathbed experience, he will point us to Christ, who is the Word made flesh, who lives forever. And then we'll hear about this promised victory that Elisha declares on behalf of the Lord. And we will see how Elisha and this promised victory pushes us to see Jesus Christ and the promised victory over sin. And then lastly and thirdly, we'll see the the newness of life. As we have this interesting scene, as this man is thrown into the grave of Elisha, he is dead. And as his dead body touches the bones of Elisha, he stands back up and walks in life. And he'll point us to how the glorified Jesus brings us to our glorification by uniting us to himself. And that's a lot, but I hope it'll be well before you as we read our text together. So again, reading verses 10 through 25. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Joash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? 
So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and all of its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck it five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made... You had made an end of it, but now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the sons of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, this past week, uh, Dr. Brown, Pastor Don, and myself were voting delegates at our General Assembly as most of you know, and I'm working even now on a review of our debates and actions like I do each year, but one of the aspects that I'll go ahead and tell you outrightly, I was sharing with the session uh, this morning, is that we, that we had a very seeming unity and harmony that I have not experienced in five, six, seven years of being a voting delegate at the General Assembly. One particular way that we showed great harmony was over a four-year-long debate regarding sexuality and our officers of the church, pastors, elders, and deacons. Last year, we passed an overture, a motion to amend our book of church order around 52% to to tighten the, the bounds, if you will, on uh, what we might identify as Christians. This year, to show you the resounding harmony that was felt amongst us, we passed a stronger overture, 87% to the glory of God. And, And I think that we could probably chalk up that great harmony to a speech that many of you have watched 
given by a father in the faith, Dr. O. Palmer Robertson. If you don't know that name, he's a well-known author. He is a retired missionary from Africa. He's also one of the founding fathers of our denomination 50 years ago this year. And it caught everybody by surprise last year because he rose and spoke for the first time in over two decades from the floor of the General Assembly. Actually, when he spoke, I heard murmurs around me last year saying, I thought Dr. Palmerson was dead. And yet, here he is speaking on the floor of General Assembly. And I heard one South Carolina ruling elder say regarding that speech last year, it is as if Elijah has shown himself from the wilderness and speaks yet again. And I thought that was a pretty privileged way of of saying it in all the best ways possible. A great resounding yes and amen to the words that a father in the faith would speak. And yes, I do believe that the harmony, the unity in which we felt this year stems from that great speech from last year. But you know what will happen. Dr. Robertson, O. Palmer Robertson, is uh, in his 90s now. And surely he will face the threshold of death sooner rather than later. And then there will be a new voice that will speak from the floor of General Assembly. And we will give the same credit to that new voice as we are doing even now to Dr. Robertson. You see, one of the things about the PCA, one of the things about all denominations, one of the things about all churches and all of Christianity is great men of the faith will come and go, they will live and die, and they are all, even the greatest men, small in comparison to Jesus Christ. These great men, they point you to Christ, sure, but that's the best thing that they could ever do, right? And here it is that this scene here before, so these few scenes here before, this is probably a better way of saying it, shows us how a great prophet, Elisha, even one of the greater prophets in all of our Bibles, point us to the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ, who lives forever. And actually, it's that idea of eternal life where I want us to start looking at our text this morning. Because like I mentioned as we were introducing the text, we have to look first at this deathbed experience of the prophet Elisha. It's there at the beginning of verse 14 and at the beginning of verse 20. The beginning of verse 14, if you'll let your eyes fall back there, it says, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. Now, interestingly enough, the author of the book doesn't give us much detail about this illness of Elisha here. But he's very clear in telling us that this illness was going to lead to Elisha's death, which he was to die. Here it is that Elisha is on his deathbed, we might say. It's very clear to us here that as Joash, the king of Israel, comes before uh, Elisha in verse 2, He is lamenting this death that Elisha would soon experience. If you look back at uh, that verse, the end of verse 14, it says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel 
and its horsemen, meaning all of Israel, even the greatest parts of Israel, even the greatest aspects of Israel, they are in mourning because here it is that Elisha is soon to die. Now what's interesting to me here is that this vile and wicked king, we read about his vile and wickedness in verses 10 through 13. This king who has given himself up to idolatry and even, we have good implication, even has been confronted by Elisha because of his idolatry. This wicked king, this sinful king is still mourning such a loss for the kingdom of Israel. Almost as a side note, I think this is uh, causing us to think about a life or the life of, of a devout Christian. You know, a devout Christian here like Elisha has, has stood firmly against sin. But he's done it in such a way that even the vilest offenders like King Joash have some sort of respect or affection for the prophet. What I think is happening here is that even though Joash's heart is hardened against God, he can appreciate the way in which Elisha lives. Throughout the ministry of Elisha, we've seen a man committed unto the Lord. We've seen a man who has been sober-minded. He has been focused upon his mission. He has been devoted to his King of kings and the Lord of lords, despite what the earthly kings might say. He cares for the people of Israel. He longs for their salvation and success. Therefore, he quickly confronts idolatry. He stands for his Lord, but he does it in such a way that demands respect and admiration. And you know, this isn't the first time we've seen such a thing in the life of Elisha. You know, just last week we were seeing this interaction between uh, Elisha and the king of Israel. At that point it was uh, Jehoram. And, And Jehoram has this fascination, you might say, with Elisha. And the power of Elisha's God. He didn't possess faith. But there was something about Elisha that that drew Jehoram in. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Joash has been drawn in from uh, or, or by Elisha. He he knows that he knows that this pending loss of Elisha is a tremendous loss for the kingdom of Israel. And so we see even the wicked king coming to Elisha as he is dying well. And if you've never heard that language of dying well, I think that's a a big deal for the Christian. And I know I've used this illustration before, but you might remember that in the midst of the 1700s, Charles Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, and also a great hymn writer, Uh, He was a preacher and a missionary at the time. And he led many people to Christ. He brought them into the local church. He discipled them faithfully. And, And the people of the cities began to realize that there was something different about these people who were coming to faith under Charles Wesley. And late in Charles's ministry, a doctor, a medical doctor, who was a dear friend of Charles, wrote to him, I have seen a many people sick unto death. 
and each one of them are scared to die, but your people die well. And what is the doctor meaning when he says something like this? He meant that these people who believed in the promises of Christ, who trust in the promises of Christ, they lived their life boldly for the Lord. They were valuable members of society. They lived full and blessed lives. And then when the Lord began calling them home, they met death with a smile because they knew that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. They lived lives that were faithful. They lived lives that even unbelievers could appreciate and notice that there's something different about these men and women who know the Lord. And that was Elisha. He's lived faithfully and now he faces death faithfully. But don't miss this. This illness that was going to cause Elisha to die in verse 14, we see his death in verse 20. Look at the first three words of verse 20. So Elisha died. Here it is that we must understand that Elisha, no matter how faithful he was, no matter how great a prophet he was, no matter how much he was respected by King Joash, he was a mere man and he faced death. You know, in Elisha's deathbed experience, we should feel some sort of a, a weightiness of dying. And I even think that we should feel some sort of sense of mourning. This is a great loss in the history of God's redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation. This is a great loss for the nation of, of Israel. God's prophet, a great prophet, one of the greatest prophets perhaps, now dies in verse 20. And yet, Elisha the prophet points us to the greatest prophet, the Lord Jesus, who lives forever. Remember, it's our Bibles that teach us that Christ executes three offices. And this is spelled out in our catechisms and our confessions that He executes three offices. The office of prophet, priest, and king. Where Elisha the prophet speaks on behalf of God, Jesus Himself lives even now as the Word made flesh. You know, as we talk about each and every Easter Sunday, and as we celebrate each and every day, especially each and every Lord's Day, we have a great prophet, the greatest prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives in the flesh, sits upon the throne of heaven even now. And so as we see Elisha perishing in death, we must be reminded that this great prophet points us to the greatest prophet who now lives forever. As Christ is risen from the grave that first Easter morning after laying down His life for our salvation, He now eternally lives in the flesh so that we might see our salvation. Our greatest prophet who is the very words of the Gospel. And of course it's that Gospel message that gives us a promised victory. A promised victory. That's our second major point here this morning, and if you'll look back at verses 15 through 19, verses 15 through 19, we have this scene where Elisha and, and Joash are, are shooting this bow and these arrows out of the window into the ground 
Uh, and, and Elisha actually tells him, as he shoots through the eastward window, as he shoots into the ground, at the end of verse 17, he says, these arrows represent the Lord's victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, talking about Elisha, to King Joash, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. So you can imagine the scene a little bit. It's an interesting scene. It might be a confusing scene at this point, but understand what Elisha the prophet is declaring. Joash, if you'll take these arrows, and if you'll shoot them through the eastward, uh, eastward window into the ground, each and every arrow you shoot will represent victory over Syria. And so as King Joash shoots these arrows, he knows what these arrows are to symbolize. And the implication here is that he has five, six, seven, maybe even a dozen arrows, and yet he stops after he shoots three arrows. If you look back at verse 18, and he struck three times, meaning he struck the ground three times, and then he stopped. Verse 19, Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You, have, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will only strike them down three times. You see what Elisha is, is saying here as he confronts now out of anger, righteous anger, but anger nonetheless, is that the Lord, Joash, would have promised you complete victory over Syria. But now you will only have partial victory over Syria. Here's how one commentator says it. He says, Elisha gives Joash a blank check of the Word of God. And the king says, thank you, but I will only cash half of it. You see, in verse 17, Elisha promises complete victory if the king desires it. But in verse 19, because of the king's half-cocked response, Syria would now raise up again after Joash conquered it a third time. Syria would now come and destroy the nation of Israel. How foolish does King Joash look in this moment? He doesn't take God at His word. He doesn't trust that the Lord will give him complete victory. It's almost as if Joash doesn't realize that apart from the Lord's provision, he doesn't stand a chance against the Syrians. And, and we actually know that that's the case from verses 10 through 13 and then verse 25 we see Joash buried as a loser king of Israel because he only defeats the nation of Syria three times. It will actually be the nation of Syria, it will be the Syrian armies that will end up putting Joash to death. He will die at the hands of his enemies because he did not believe in the full promises of the Lord. The promises of God did not stir him up enough to pursue the com complete victory that was promised. And we should take this as a severe warning, I think. Because often we have this half-heartedness that we see Joash displaying here before us. 
We don't trust the promises of God as we ought. We don't desire complete victory over our enemies as we should. You know, in the Old Testament, the enemies of God and idolatry often signify our sins as a New Testament people, and it's no different here because we go to battle against our sinful flesh. We wage war against the principalities of of darkness. And in Christ, our victory is is promised and, and sure. But how often do we think like King Joash that we can do this on our own? We think we can defeat sin on our own. Or even worse, we don't even want to destroy our sins. We simply want to contain them and leave them to our own doings. If that's you, we need to hear texts like Colossians chapter 3. Listen to this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him to glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with all of its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. Paul is saying very clearly, and what's being displayed here in 2 Kings chapter 13, if we are now a people of God, if we are now to be counted as the people of God, if we have been born again by the Spirit of Christ, if we are believers in the Gospel, we cannot afford to let sin live. We must kill it. And kill it dead. That's precisely the message, isn't it? Elisha grows in his anger because Joash does not want to to put the enemy in utter destruction. There's a ruthlessness here that we must understand that Joash is not able to bring himself to. And there is a ruthlessness in the words of Paul as he tells us to kill sin. He tells us that if we have been born again, we must kill it and kill it dead. You know, when it comes to making progress in our Christian lives, we want soft and gentle paths that do not require much efforts from us, don't we? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we want, our, we want dealing with our sin to be something like poetry. We want it to be like a slow walk on a beach somewhere. That's how I would like my fight against sin to go. But it's not that way, beloved. Paul tells us that we have to be an executioner of our sin. That's what Elisha's calling King Joash here to. Not to just contain our sin, not to half kill our sin and think that we can do the rest or even want to keep the best but we must kill it we must yield the sword and begin to thrash at our sin our much loved and our long cherished sin 
But here's how it often goes instead. We recognize sin in our heart. We hear God's Word. We read God's Word. And our conscience immediately stings with our recognition of our sin. We see our sinfulness. And we know that we have to act. We even know the words of Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus said, if it's your left arm that causes you to sin, cut it off. Radical obedience. And yet, we allow the deceiver, Satan himself, to plead with us and say, let your sin live. He says that about your pornography addiction. He says that about your cynical and judgmental heart. He says that about your festering resentment. He says that about your pride and vainglory. He says, you know what? You're not as bad of a sinner as those who are sitting down the pew from you. So let it live. You can have it under control. You can do it just this once. You have the ability to control it, to contain it. But Elisha says here to Joash, you do not have the ability to control Syria. You do not have the ability to contain the Syrian armies. Paul is saying in Colossians 3, you do not have the ability to just do it that once. You must recognize that sin is out to kill you. That the Syrian armies are out to destroy you. Therefore, you must deliver the death blow to your sin. Paul's arguing here, and it's shown to us here in 2 Kings chapter 13, that that sin and fighting against sin is not just changing or fixing your behavior. Yes, it has something to do with behavior. But it goes much deeper than that. We must root it out. We must completely destroy it. And so if you even take some of those examples that Paul gives us in Colossians chapter 3, if sexual immorality is the issue of your life, if that is the besetting sin in which you struggle with, you must take radical steps to break those patterns. You must take decisive action to break the pattern and change the cycle, no matter what the cost is, it takes an immediate action. And that's what the teaching of the Holy Scripture here is before us. We do need to do that. Elisha is clear. It's going to take more than three arrows. It's going to take immediate, decisive reaction. It's going to take the death blow that you must deal it. And you say, well, Matt, how do I do these things? How do, I, how do I root out the deep and the festering poison that lurks so deeply in me? And I want to give you four practical ways. Number one, there is no way to deal with your sin without being a part of the family of God. You cannot deal with your sin unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what it's what, Elijah, I mean, what Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3. If you have been raised up with Christ, if you have been raised up, then you can put to death sin. But you must be active in putting to death sin. And so you must consume yourself with the means of grace privately. You must be a man or woman of the Word and prayer. You cannot expect to make progress in killing sin if you neglect the weapons that God has given you to kill sin. If you think even about the 
the armor of God, which is spelled out for us in Ephesians 6, what is the one offensive weapon? It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God will show you your own weaknesses and liability, and yet it will show you a Christ that promises victory. And then number three, you must not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Not only do we need the means of grace privately within our own lives, but we need the means of grace in the corporate setting. On the Lord's Day, we need to be under the preached Word. We need to be under the sacraments of baptism and and the Lord's Supper. We need to, as the confession says, remember our baptism. Remember how the Lord has sealed us in His promises. Remember how He invites us into His presence at the Lord's table so that we might feast with Him and be transformed by Him each time we partake of the bread and the cup. We need to be under the ordinary means of grace on the Lord's Day, both morning and evening. I heard one pastor say, if you feel cold in your walk with Christ, why don't you move a little closer to the fire? You know, oftentimes when I'm counseling or when I'm uh, helping an individual through a hard circumstance in life, and they say something as, or along the lines of, well, you know what, I just don't hear God speak as I should. I think, well, are you committed to the worship of God both morning and evening? Are, are you sitting under? Are you sitting under the Lord speaking to you? Because that is how we hear the Lord speak, beloved. It's in the preached Word of God on the Lord's Day. And so if we're fighting against sin, if we're trying to kill sin in our own lives, we will not be transformed unless we are men and women of the Word both privately and corporately. And then number four, very practically, we need to get ourselves a band of brothers or a band of sisters who will be honest with us with whom we can be honest with. And we need to come clean about what's really going on in the depths of our hearts. And we need to have people in our lives that say, I need your help. Will you help me? We need accountability. We need people praying for us. Away with the days of uh, of hiding sin. But let, let our church family help us carry that burden of sin with us. Because you know what? Sin thrives in the shadows. It thrives in the dark. And we need to bring it to life. We need to bring it to light where it will wither and die. We need to confess our sins, as the Scriptures say, to one another. We need to plug in. We need to have a band of brothers, a band of sisters where we can get real. And we need to have people who will hold us accountable with the fight against sin. Just as Elisha promises here that there is complete victory to be had. Beloved, I know that the Christian life is full of temptation and full of struggle, but there can be victory. Small victory. Large victory. There can be sanctification. There are sins that you can put to death on this side of heaven. And if you'll use the Word of God, the prayers, the people of God, then you can taste that victory which is foreshadowed here for us in 2 Kings chapter 13. And then thirdly and finally, we need to see the newness of life. I know I'm short on time, but look at verses 20 through 21. So Elisha died, 
and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, of course, dying in the battles, behold, pay attention, wake up, look what's about to happen. A marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown, this dead man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Here it is that new life is foreshadowed in this man, this strange scene of this man touching the bones of Elisha and now living again. It's a powerful scene, isn't it? Where Elisha's bones and this dead man are made alive again. It's a sign of our resurrected bodies. Just as the Word is made flesh in Jesus Christ Himself, just as He lives even now, the promise of the Gospel message is that so shall we live. And on that day we will be new in every way. We will be holy and righteous. We will be alive forevermore. That's what this scene pushes us to understand. You know, back in Colossians chapter 3, we might be sitting here and wondering, do we really need to be serious about our sin problem? Well, let me remind you of verse 6. It says, On account of these, talking about these evil desires that exist within our hearts, the wrath of God is coming. God takes sin seriously. And as we trust in Him, as we pursue Christ's likeness, as we cling to Him for mercy and for grace, yes, we are called to be radical in our sin. We're called to be practical in fighting and killing our sin. We must take concrete measures to do so. Because if we're caught in our sin, the wrath of God is coming. But if we cling to Christ, if we declare war against our sin, here is some rich encouragement from Paul. He says, you are being worked on. God is at work in you to renew you into the image of His Son, your Savior. He will work for His own good pleasure. The good work that God has started in you, He will bring about to its completion. And beloved, that should motivate you. That should motivate you to cling to this newness of life. When we find ourselves destroying our own lives because we keep stumbling and falling in sin, we're tempted, aren't we, just to give up. But Paul is saying, in this scene in verse 20 and 21, is saying that if we will meet Christ and Him crucified, then there is life to be had forevermore. And the promise of the Gospel is that God will never quit on you. That He will always be at work on you. And He will finish what He has started. He will carry you on to the completion of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might not see at this moment how you'll get from where you are now to where you will be then, but His promises are sure. So you keep pressing forward. You keep killing sin. You put to death the enemies of the flesh. You put to death the temptation of Satan, the principalities of darkness. And one day, brothers and sisters, the truth of verses 20 and 21 here in 2 Kings chapter 13, that as soon as we come to Christ, 
we will be alive again. We will be revived. And we will stand upon our own feet. Because the Lord has promised He is making all things new. He is at work within us. And as we kill sin, as we pursue righteousness, no matter how strong we think we are, sin will kill you. But if we cling to Christ and Him crucified, we might even now feel this reviving again and we might walk in the ways of the Lord and stand sure upon His promises. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that it would convict where it ought to convict, encourage where it ought to encourage. Lord, let us be active in our killing of sin. Let Your Word push to us a a Savior who is even living today. And by His Spirit and by His Word, He will sanctify us. He will give us victories, both great and small so that we might stand firm upon the Gospel of Jesus Christ, so that we might be revived again. We need Your presence every lasting hour. And so, Lord, let us run to You. Let us cling to the cross of Calvary where our salvation is found. Let us look at the empty tomb knowing that the Lord Jesus' resurrection, this newness of life, can be ours as as we come to You in faith. Lord, build in us more faith so that we might be living vessels for You. Bless us, cleanse us, enable us to kill sin before it kills us. And we pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen.